<laughs> Where's the lamb sauce? It's back, baby. Lockdown part two is here. <laughs> I don't have an opening for this uh, for this episode. Um, I don't know why, uh, but I feel like I've kind of used every possible abstract metaphor imaginable, cut up, dissected, drained from twenty one episodes worth. But maybe I have to reapproach it because um, <laughs> these lockdowns are coming thick and fast. <laughs> So um, yeah, we are we are back. Um, uh, I guess a matter of, of of weeks after we left everybody. Yeah, we made a big song and dance about that being the last one for a while, didn't we? And then uh, lo and behold, about what is it? A month later, maybe we are we are back. Partly due to the circumstances, but also partly just because it felt like the timing was right, didn't it? Well, but and also because we really wanted to. We really uh, wanted to. We're bored. We've got nothing else going on, so we thought <laughs> we might as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of like rekindling, you know, an old relationship that you know, right, rightfully ended, um, but you know, you just you just you just can't let it go, um, and it's conveniently close to you. You know, they live down the road, so it's just worth going back for, you know, another shag <laughs> is that what you're comparing this to basically yeah Where, where's the lamb sauce is my local shag basically yeah <laughs> i mean we could we could i guess we could all see another lockdown coming so it's sort of like it was it was the perfect excuse for it for a comeback not that we need an excuse but it is an excuse yeah um, because that is that is essentially what was the cue for the original where's the lamb sauce was a national lockdown of unprecedented measures so it it felt it felt very fitting that on lockdown 2.0 was the right time for the return of the where's the lamb sauce yeah would you agree with that yeah definitely we said before i think that where's the lamb sauce would never have got off the ground in normal circumstances it was entirely because we were forced to retreat into our own homes for weeks on end that we had the time and the wherewithal to do it so i think just out of a kind of habitual feeling this feels like the right thing to be doing so it's good to be back yeah yeah it is good to be back i mean in in, in my mind um this is almost like a kind of uh a reunion that our producers and the networks have been you know nagging us for mm. for months you know um after you know buckling under so much fan pressure you know, almost like Seinfeld or something, you know, it's you know, millions of adoring fans begging for us to come back. How is your mum? Well, <laughs> she doesn't even listen to it that often. I told you, <laughs> you scared her off with your smut in one episode. So uh, we can't even, I can't even claim her as a listener. Um, what I was trying to say is, is that for me, this is like us dying. We're going to dine off the profits of this return for like the rest of our lives. But actually, the reality is, is that we're the only ones who really asked for this to come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not exactly bowing to public pressure here, are we? No, no. So, yeah, I would say, you know, while this comeback is kind of self-indulgent in many ways, um, the whole premise of the series is self-indulgence. So if you didn't find this funny then, you won't find this funny now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, don't tell them that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, um, today's a, I mean, today's an, an also an exciting day to be re-recording a podcast, isn't it? it I'm, I'm in a celebratory yeah. mood, uh, not just because Where's Lamb Sauce is coming back, but because there are other matters going on in the world which are almost as important. 
Yeah, what a day to be a global citizen. Where's the lamb right. sauce returns and Donald Trump is on his way out. It's a great day. We know we've got some listeners in the US um, and they they might be, this might be a bad day for them. If, they're, if it is a bad day for them, they can fuck off, right? Yeah, completely agreed. Good, good. But it did get me thinking there is a, there is, there is a vacancy for another alternative presidential candidate. Yes, the stage is well and truly set, isn't it, for Gordon 2024. Yeah. He's the perfect American president. He's narcissistic. He's a megalomaniac. He loves giving people orders. He loves having his photo taken with the armed forces. <laughs> what is there about his character that isn't presidential? There, there is I mean, all those things. I mean, all those things you just, you've just listed... I guess, in a way, there is precedent for it to for that to exist in the White House. Yeah. What would Gordon bring to global politics if he was to, you know, if he was to take up the hot seat? Um, a complete lack of subtlety in his diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, also he does. He communicates. He spreads his message through Fox as well, doesn't he? <laughs> He's basically a culinary a culinary Trump. <laughs> In a parallel universe, it's not impossible to imagine Ramsey having been president for the last four years instead of Trump. I'm not even sure it's a parallel universe. It's, it, it, in this universe, I can literally see Gordon Ramsey uh, running for president. Oh, no, he can't because he's not an American citizen. That's why Schwarzenegger couldn't do it, right? Ah, yeah. this, this is all fiction. It's probably a good thing. I feel quite disappointed all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little bit deflated. The initial high of this episode has subsided a little bit now that the, the thought of Ramsey being president oh, is shit. never going to come to fruition. Who would be in a, in a fictional Ramsey administration? <laughs> who, who, who would be his vice president? Oh, there's only one man for the job, JC. Well, I mean, you say that, but there, but there is... Or a, JB. Yeah, I mean, which one is <laughs> or it? Or JP. <laughs> Maybe that's the whole cabinet or whatever they call it in America. You got JB, JC, JP, and the rest. I of think them. Sarge would be his um, Secretary of Defense or like his intelligence um, advisor because that's, isn't Sarge the one that's gone undercover with the body cam? He would be his Director of Intelligence. <laughs> yeah, Sarge would be Director of Intelligence. Who would be Chief of Staff? Chief of Staff. Uh, Chief of Staff. What do they do exactly? What's their uh, What's their remit? Do they have to just like tell people what to do, basically? Sort Sort people out, basically. Yeah, that would be the um. That would be. I can't remember which of the J's it was, but whichever one got bought into the Sandgate Hotel, the young French guy in a suit with cufflinks. That's um. Oh, that's Jean Baptiste. Jean Baptiste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, JC is the one from Hell's Kitchen. That's the yeah, yeah, the slightly, the slightly sort of like um, more sleazy looking the one. Suave Belgian. Oh yes, all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jean Baptiste was the one that got got shipped across the channel, wasn't he, to sort out the failing Sandgate Hotel and just came in and didn't take any prisoners. Yeah, he'd be the perfect chief of staff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he would. Yeah, he would sort. He would sort the front of house out. That is literally the metaphor you could use. Um, who would be the Secretary of Defense? You know, like the attack dog. What the the what, what's the guy's name in the states? Mad Dog, is he? Yeah, Ma- Mad Dog Mathis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, who would that be? Is there some? Think... Is there someone in the Ram in the Ramsey scheme in the Ramsey world who's um, essentially just a a belligerent tyrant? 
That's not Ramsey. Yeah. Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe one of his sons would be uh, would get a job as well. It would be Trump part two, wouldn't it? His entire family would be straight in. Or we might be if we keep this up. That's a good shout. So that if in in this parallel universe, you and I are the Steve Bannon and Alex Jones figures. Is Alex Jones the contestant from The Apprentice that he literally brought in to be his aide in the White House? Oh no, um, Omarosa. That's her. Ah, name, right. Yeah, yeah. Because he literally just brought someone off a reality TV show. To be, to be his aide which is the sort of thing Ramsey would do yeah totally definitely maybe you'd bring in um, one of our favourite characters from Kitchen Nightmares into into the White House as well who's that I don't know maybe it'd be like Mr Khan or someone foreign secretary yeah yeah, yeah sort of Asian <laughs> diplomacy <laughs> anyway so um, Gordon 2024 you heard it here first um, and if, yeah. you, if you see us see us in the uh, White House press room. <laughs> Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. Stranger things have genuinely happened over the last four years. We've still got time for our listeners. We don't forget the little people, even when we've been yeah. promoted to the White House. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's Gordon 2024. Um, we are also here to look to reflect on uh, 21 episodes and six months worth of Where's the Lamb Sauce podcasting glory um yeah i mean that that that's not also the reason that that is the reason oh yeah that is the reason we're here yes yeah it's not just uh it's it's not just to not just a pitch for the white house (laughs) job when ramsey gets in (laughs) but not just sowing the seeds in in case gordon hears hears this (laughs) do you think anyone's flagged this to him We've tagged him so many times on Instagram. I find it hard to believe that nobody in his wider circle has clicked through to see what we're banging on about. Do you remember when you texted him at the beginning of the, uh, of the series? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was a, got a bounce back, sadly, because I'm not in the US. Maybe this is all yeah. part of his presidential run-up. Yeah, He's yeah. alienating his UK fans further so that people just believe he was born in the States. This is the post, post-truth world anyway. Exactly. What are facts in this realm? There are no facts, you know? There are no facts. It doesn't matter. This is why if, if he takes enough photos of himself with the US Coast Guard, he's American. You could tell me the Earth is flat and I could tell you it's not, but exactly. there's no facts involved here. Your opinion versus my opinion. Exactly. So Gordon is still very much in the race for 2024. Sorry, Joe. So yeah, so uh, <laughs> 21 episodes of Where's the Lamb Source. It's not quite like saying 21 years of Where's the Lamb Source, is it? Or, you know, that feels like it's respectable platform to have a kind of tribute episode of. But 21 episodes, it's still uh, it's a decent amount. It's not bad at all. Do you remember when we started out, when we started out Where's the Lamb Source, the premise was very much to kind of, um, to kind of explore Gordon's psyche develop a kind of psychological profile of him i mean i listened back to the pilot episode we did which by the way the audio and that is absolutely fucking terrible um i really hope no new listeners listen to that one first because that's enough to put them off for life um but um we opened it with um we kind of framed the podcast as one that peels back the layers of gordon ramsay in action to gain a deeper understanding of what makes a man like him tick. Mm. Um, I think in earlier episodes, we kind of made a, an effort to sort of systematically reflect on on what we've learned from the previous episodes and, and try and understand, you know, 
what what kind of uh, what kind of person he is. We sort of <laughs> we sort of abandoned that system at some point, uh, but I think the whole the whole series, um, in a way, we we learnt, we learn everything there is to know about Gordon. Would would you agree? Yeah, I feel like I know him very well now. I feel like after twenty one episodes of talking about the man we've got a pretty good grasp on what makes him tick and we've got a pretty good grasp on the kind of person he is um i mean what would your main takeaways from this whole thing be we, we have to have some we've got to have some deliverables at the end of this we've got to be able to say we've learnt x y and z otherwise the whole thing has been futile uh that, that's that's true um if anything, it's confirmed what I already knew about Gordon, that he's an extreme narcissist who still has some very redeemable qualities about him. He is the ultimate, if, you, if you're going to make an omelette, you've got to break some eggs sort of person. Um, <laughs> and my God, does he break some eggs? So I don't know if that qualifies as a, as a deliverable, um, uh, <laughs> Sam, but you know, I, I think it is at least a an informed empirical assessment of who he is as a person. It definitely is empirical because we, you know, I don't think there's anyone else that studied him in this much detail. I think I've come out of this whole thing with a more positive view of Gordon than I had going into it. I think we have been able to peel back the layers a little bit behind the narcissism and the egotistical side of him and see some of his better qualities as well. For instance, anybody who works hard and seems to have a spark of potential, he's very quick to offer them as much support and advice and often a job to try to help them progress in their career. And that's something that at the start of this, I probably wouldn't have said is a Gordon Ramsay trait. That's true. But I think he I think he can spot and appreciate potential and hard work quite early and is very generous in supporting people who who show those qualities. If you were in um hypothetically in a kitchen nightmares episode with all that you have learned from um meticulously planning 21 episodes of a podcast for this purpose how would you behave in order to um, get on the good side of Gordon I think the main thing he wants to see is enthusiasm and spark and gumption I think he knows that a lot of these chefs haven't had particularly formal training and so he just wants to see that they give a shit to be honest what I wouldn't do is replicate the assistant chef Al Donna from La Lanterna's approach which is when Ramsay says to me, what do you like about food? Say, nothing really. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've seen this quite a lot throughout the series, though. Um, and this, ne- this is one of the, the, the things that I learned about the other characters throughout the series, is that um, even back then, Gordon Ramsay was a fucking really famous chef. Um, and some of these people seemed so... Um, uh, disinterested in remotely impressing him, like going almost like it's an effort to not. Im- it's a, it takes more effort to not impress him in the way that yeah, they do. It's, it's, <laughs> you it's, know what I mean? Yeah, it really is like remarkable. 
if anyone, if you were a chef and anyone walked into your kitchen and said to you, you know, what do you like about food? Surely you just want to say, oh, you know, um, uh, I, I like this cuisine or I like something about it. But to say to anybody, nothing really um, takes a certain sort of mindset. It's amazing that Gordon finds these people. Well, we've discussed this before and like you and I haven't both worked in regional food establishments have come across these people in in a previous life and it's Mm. not people who have any passion for for food whatsoever and so to them it's just another job they really don't care there isn't any creative flair there isn't any pride there at all it's just a case of them Mm. being there taking home a wage and, and and that's literally it and so to them a lot of the time it seems as though having somebody who's coming in and judging what they do is actually a is actually an inconvenience rather than an opportunity because they don't give a fuck they don't want to climb the ladder they couldn't care less they just sort of like come in and get home on time that's true that's true i do i i still struggle to get into the mindset of anybody doing a job and um outright telling somebody who's been drafted in to improve something just telling them straight to their face i don't like anything about my job (laughs) (laughs) yeah what did we learn about ourselves as presenters by the way because for both of us this is our first foray into podcast presenting and i learned a lot about myself from listening back to the episodes like first of all i'm now far less self-conscious about my own voice Uh uh-oh we're we're all in trouble now. Dom likes the sound of his own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I preferred it before. <laughs> I also discovered how often um, during a podcast I said absolutely. <laughs> I say it all. The, I said it all the time. Why? I don't think I've ever heard you say absolutely. I mean, you know, oh my god, I say it all the time. Even things I disagreed with completely. You would say things like, "Ah, oh, you know, Trump's all right." You know, and I'd be like, "Yeah, absolutely," and then move on. <laughs> <laughs> or um, Gordon, you know, or Gordon's not that sleazy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd, I'd say things like that. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I think it was just um, just presenter nerves. It's made me much more empathetic to the role of being a presenter now. Put it that way. Do you want to hear something I learned about you? Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, how often you appeal to the listeners um, for for their involvement somehow? It's like a, it's like a really bad habit you've got. You're like a, you're like an even more eternally optimistic Richard Madeley, um, constantly just, <laughs> just, just constantly just asking the listeners for what they think about something completely inane. <laughs> you have to involve the normal people. I read it's what they like. Oh, is it? <laughs> you read the, the podcast handbook. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say what I did learn is how bad the audio was in some of the earlier episodes, which is quite embarrassing. So. Every time I speak to um, someone about the podcast now, uh, a lot a lot of the time they sound enthusiastic about listening to it. But I'm always like, ah, oh, don't listen to the earlier ones because the the audio is so bad. Did you do? Did you find that as well? Well, yeah, obviously the audio is terrible, but I don't think we should let that stand in the way. I think the the raw talent on the <laughs> show cuts through. It's like the early Velvet Underground recordings. You know, they sound <laughs> fucking dreadful, but you know there's magic there. Yeah, lo-fi punk. That's that's yeah. our aesthetic. That's our aesthetic. Yeah. Exactly. We never want it to be too polished. Yeah, exactly. Until we're in the Fox Studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, permatanned. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I thought that throughout the whole series, listening back now, I thought I sounded really bored the whole time. You've assured me that's not the case. Fucking hell. I mean, if you're if one half of the um, if the if the idea is bored, <laughs> what hope do we have? <laughs> um, I thought the reaction was um, was 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 uh, was interesting. I mean, um, the highlight for me from um, responses from listeners was Young Toro's introduction of Hal's dubstep to us. I mean, I don't want to. Do- How could there be anything uh, else? I mean, we've talked. We did talk about it a fair amount across two or three episodes, I think. So we don't need to go into it too much now, but we will anyway. Uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, this this guy, this guy deserves um, so much credit for creating a a dubstep track out of Gordon Ramsay um, audio from YouTube. Uh, It's fantastic. Can we give it a little blast? Yeah, here it is. Shit! Fucking rotten! No, definitely. It's a grower. It is an absolute grower. Three months on, I like it even more than I did now. Um, I hope, yeah. hopefully, the same can be said about our podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I would love to go into in part two and um, start going into a few of our highlights from the series. Um, I mean, I don't have any particular. Uh, order or plan for these but I think um, there are so many great memories across 21 episodes I think it's worth recapping on some of our favourites how does that sound? Yeah let's do it let's get nostalgic that's coming up in part two Welcome back to Where's the Lamb Sauce Um, it's time to get misty eyed and sentimental as we take a trip down memory lane Yeah um, before we do that that though just during the break then Sam you reminded me of when you got your soapbox that time um, in one of the episodes and you started talking about um, Chef Kobe, the one-year-old Instagram influencer. Um, and <laughs> oh, and so I actually God. re-listened to that episode recently uh, as part of my research. I said, oh my God, you go on for ages. What were you thinking? <laughs> Why did I stop you? <laughs> <laughs> what is the point in having a podcast if you can't express your views in an unfiltered way like that? That's going to be our route to the White House. <laughs> I think it's... Um, a completely valid point I was making and I made it in an informed and passionate way and I don't see what the problem is frankly it's probably it's more palatable um and far more succinct than the sourdough saga well that went on for weeks and it's is ongoing by the way but um I just I just remember a friend of mine who, who listened to our show saying to me what the hell was your friend talking about she thought you'd gone a bit bonjour who said that it was uh Beatrice the, the Dutch person oh yeah she, well, she's Dutch they love child abuse over there <laughs> You know, <laughs> you have got a bit bored. You've lost the plot. You've got, you've got old Trump. <laughs> it's all part of the plan. 
gone, gone all to Gordon 2024. <laughs> gone all. <laughs> They've merged. Well, you've alienated all of our listeners um, from the Netherlands, which is approximately one. Uh, so, um, uh, but uh, what, do you have anything more to say on Chef Kobe? No, I'm done. Okay, okay, good. Um, where should we kick off then uh, in terms of um, memory lane of where's the lamb sauce? Oh, there's just so many. It's just so many. I, I don't know where to start. Well, I think for me, the best bit, of the whole series was always the characters. Yes. Yeah. There are so many great characters in this series and I just love how unassuming most of it is, how unglamorous most of it is. And it's just a perfect portrait of sort of mid-noughties Britain. Um, especially sort of, you know, the, the smaller towns uh, at that sort of time. Yeah. So I think we should start off with with a couple of the characters. Was there one in particular, this is a difficult question, for you, who stands out as your favourite character of the series? I mean, I'm a bit spoiled for choice with this because there are so many sort of cult legends for me. I'd probably say uh, Santo would be right up there. Oh no! I know he's a ve- <laughs> he, he, he is a um, uh, a very peripheral character, as in you know. I mean, that's not even a supporting role. That's a, that's an extra. No, I know, I know. In terms of screen time, <laughs> in terms of screen time, he's got very very little. But it's 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 not how much screen time you get; it's what you do with it. And you're totally right. And why don't you remind us of who Santo is? Because I doubt anybody else remembers so santo um was from one of the early episodes i think it was the walnut tree um which was a uh formerly michelin starred restaurant in wales i think um and they needed a new head chef so they were interviewing for uh, new head chefs and santo was um someone who turned up and um having uh, <laughs> the interview was um well, let's say it, was, it wasn't. It wasn't one. It wasn't a textbook interview. They asked him. Um, <laughs> I think you described him as looking like a B tech, uh, a B tech mafioso, or, ba- or, yeah. or Barry from EastEnders um, in drag, or something, or something like something like that. It was a B tech mafioso, or Barry from EastEnders as an extra in The Sopranos. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly what he's like. He turns up. Like this, with his arm around a woman and smoking a, smoking a cigarette, I think. Um, and they're asking him, you know, pretty simple interview questions like, you know, why do you want to work here? What do you know about the restaurant? And he basically just says nothing. Uh, I, I don't know anything about the restaurant. I want to change. That's the only reason why I want to move. And um, we find out that his previous um, his previous job was at the a Holiday Inn in Swindon, um, which is uh, our hometown. Um, and uh, when he's talking about the sort of food he prepared there, he emphasised the dependency on the microwave. <laughs> he, he, he spoke about the microwave food as if it was a cuisine within itself. Um, so anyway, he was put to the test in the kitchen, you know, in a kind of trial, uh, you know, make us a dish to see what, you know, what you're made of. And um, 
he makes his sort of like pile of shit, which he serves to Gordon and the owner of the restaurant. And he describes it as pasta fresca. I don't know if he thought the Italian guy sat at the table and Gordon Ramsay wouldn't know what that meant. But <laughs> like, oh, pasta fresca, that sounds exotic. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, they did know what it meant. And um, they they thought that <laughs> the food was absolutely a- a- appalling, which, which, it, which it looked. Um, and he get he gets a lot of respect from it from just being such comedy value in such a short space of time he packs it in doesn't he he's really good value for money he really does what about you for me another character that doesn't get a huge amount of screen time but is just incredible value is the waiter zach yes more place yes now he's the guy who had difficulty basically repeating back to Gordon what Gordon had just said to him when he was trying to describe a new dish, a haddock chowder. Um, I think we should just play the clip because it's bloody funny. Smoked haddock chowder, beautiful creamy soup garnish with flakes of oat smoked haddock, finished with a wonderful poached quail egg. So, nice beef chowder. Beef chowder, definitely not. We also have a special on today, clam chowder. The chowder. The chowder is a very nice uh, platter. Uh, it's a very nice taste. Platter? Platter, no. I'm turning fucking grey. I have to read the menu, go through the menu and watch. Right, I'll, give, I'll give the menu to you. There you go. Okay, hold on a minute. Let me just see what we got. Last time, even my pubes are going grey. Garnished with the uh, oaks of haddock flake. I'm sorry, garnished with... <laughs> can you cook? No. And one last chance for Zach. Here we go. I'm ready. This one, I can feel in my bones. I can see how relaxed you are. You're looking good, you're cool, you're dude, and bam, give it to me. The, the smoked haddock chowder is a very nice dish. Um, it has a nice creamy, fishy garnished with flakes and a nice uh, smoked haddock in the middle. <laughs> it's been selling like hot cakes. <laughs> oh, shit. We've only had like two days to prepare, though, so it's like... Oh, fucking hell, you got two days to prepare one fucking speech. I've got 24 hours to get a fucking ration ready. <laughs> Unbelievable. And what I like so much about Zach is he's so well-meaning and he's just absolutely hopeless. So hopeless. And at the start of the episode, Ramsey describes him and he says, Zach's been here a week and he knows nothing. Really nothing. Then later on, when Ramsey returns to the restaurant a month later, Zach finds him like a Exocet missile, (laughs) runs over to him and repeats word for word the description of the haddock chowder that, that Ramsey had given him four weeks earlier as if to say, like, see, I told you I could do it. <laughs> this is four weeks later. The like fucking dish is probably off the menu at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, a direct, you know, a director for a Shakespeare play. You know, it's like you can't master, you know, you can't master Macbeth. You haven't got a chance in performing at the Globe, you know. And four months later, you know, he has, he's, you know, he's, he's learned Macbeth. Um, <laughs> This is this equivalent for Zach. He's learned he's learned a dish on a menu four months later. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good that's such a good um, comparison. It is really like someone saying you you just can't yeah. remember the words to Hamlet. Like forget it, and then a month yeah. later he comes running over like to be or not to be. Like fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not many more words than that. He's trying to recall. He uh, just the fact he gets the dish so wrong at the start is just so funny it's a haddock chowder and he calls it a beef chowder it's just hilarious uh, i mean that that is one of those that has en- that has infiltrated our um our sort of uh vocab 
hasn't it? Yeah. Um, our vernacular, we often say, uh, yeah. know, if one of us has made a mistake, we often say... Beef chowder, not definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that is... Uh, <laughs> That is a, a window into the humour of me and Sam behind closed doors, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's been a pretty wide open window into our humour for the last six yeah, months. Yeah, that's true, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone needs any more of an insight. Talking of which, um, I, had to tell a, I had to tell a hinge match about, my po- about, my, about this podcast recently. That was a real leap did of you? faith. Yeah, that was a real leap of faith. Um, that, that was How the- did that go down? She said it sounded fantastic. Um, I don't believe her um, at all. I don't believe she even uh, she even um, uh, listened to one episode. Um, I don't think she ever Definitely will. Definitely not. Um, but this is a question. If you were on a date... That is a big red flag. Well, she thinks this sounds good. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I know. Um, that's, that's, that's the acid test. If she thinks the podcast I've created sounds good, not for me. No, absolutely not. Not for me. Yeah. But that's that's a good question, actually. Um, to go off on a bit of a tangent, um, if you you know if you're meeting someone for the first time that you want to impress, would you tell them about Where's the Lamb Sauce? Because we we've always positioned this as a very niche podcast, not for everybody. Um, I think it would depend in what realm. If it was, I mean, I don't meet many people in any realm <laughs> anymore. <laughs> but I think I think if I if if I met a group of people and started talking about podcasts in that instance i'd probably say oh i i i've got a podcast i also am very wary of being the guy with the podcast i'm also very wary of being perceived as a gordon ramsay fanboy i don't think we are no we're not this is an issue i've had a couple of friends or acquaintances say to me oh i didn't realize you liked gordon ramsay so much it's like i really don't that's not the thing. This isn't uh, this isn't a Gordon Ramsay fan club podcast. As weird as that sounds, uh, exactly. In fact, when I told this girl from Hinge that I had a podcast, I had to say to her, "Look, actually, um, I don't think me or you care about ninety percent of Gordon Ramsay the concept. It's that ten percent that we really love, and this is this is a podcast for that ten percent." It's a <laughs> It's a pretty, it's a pretty <laughs> stupid idea, isn't it? It's just dawned on me how stupid <laughs> this is. We are going for the niche of the niche. <laughs> well, this is where we found um, our our niche. Yeah, exactly. It's it's such a niche. It's a sub niche that it's not Gordon Ramsay yeah. fans because he's so mainstream, and it's not. It's like it's like imagine imagine Gordon Ramsay was a genre. We are the underground of that. <laughs> We're like post Ramsey. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Neo Ramsey. <laughs> post Ramsey. <laughs> I like that. Anyway, sorry, we've gone off on a massive tangent there. We were talking about the characters. We we're just talking about ourselves and the podcast. Oh, how's that <laughs> happened? Um, oh, not again. A few other honourable mentions for uh, favourite characters. I think um, Les, the Rotund Bingo Caller, is another one. Um, uh, the guy that <laughs> yeah. Ra- the guy that Ramsey asked to turn around so he could pat his belly and say, "This guy fucking eats," and um, who who happily obliged to that request. He seemed to quite enjoy it. Yeah, um, we've got Alan Love, the beady-eyed theatre lovey. Remember him? Yeah, of course I do. He was he was a great character. He was quite divisive, wasn't he? I liked him. You thought he was a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> In yeah. fact, your exact words were, you can tell a lot 
about a man by their eyes, and his eyes tell me he's got wandering hands. <laughs> that makes me sound like I was abused or something. No, it, I, I do think he looked quite—he looked quite um, unreliable around um, around women. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great euphemism. Um, I, I, what I remember about Alan Love uh, beyond his beady eyes um, was that—that's that classic soundbite from him where he says he's not God. It's Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, I like that. So, Ramsay has all the characteristics of a religious figure, doesn't he? Or a president. He may not be God. He may not be God, but he might be president soon. There ain't much difference. Yeah, true. Do you think he would, if if he was sworn in for president, do you think he would do it on one of his own cookbooks? <laughs> Didn't Trump uh, want to s- s- swear the, like... Do it on the art of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe Gordon would do it on humble pie. Maybe is that, is that, is, I've not read that. I should really read that, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. No. I I was looking for that for you for Christmas. It wasn't even available on Amazon Books. Really? It's 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 rare. Yeah. Yeah. It was rare. It How was rare. rare can that possibly be? I couldn't find it for a reasonable price. <laughs> what what do you what do you think of as a reasonable price for that? Oh, I'm not paying over a tenner for that. I mean. No, okay, definitely not. Anyway, uh, back to characters. So, um, yeah, I think those are that's a good group of cult legends, I think. Alan Love, Santo, Zach, Les, maybe Mr. Khan, the Bollywood porn star. Mr. Khan um, should I'm definitely be in there. Big fan of him. Um, he is the one who um, Gordon, Gordon described him as um, being looking too clean or too handsome to be a chef. And he took that as a compliment, <laughs> where I think Gordon meant it as an insult. <laughs> yeah, Gordon was basically saying to him, you've never got your hands dirty in your life. And he's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolute legend. Love that guy. Yeah, uh, he was great. What about characters who don't deserve so much sympathy, um, who uh, we have genuinely disliked or wanted to fail? Because they're all failing in some way. Yeah, there are some you wish disaster on. One of those is in our latest episode in Paris, Piccolo Teatro. Oh, yeah. And it was not Rachel, the owner, who was very bad, but it was her mate, Steph, who was even worse. She was the most unlikable character for me. Uh, I mean, she described described the food there as... Not particularly spectacularly exceptional. And um, I think that's exactly as I would describe her as a person as well. Yeah. Doesn't get much more damning than that, Steph. Exactly. Yeah. And the fact that she makes she makes Rachel look okay. I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> so Rachel was uh, the spoilt brat who um, was, tr- was pretending to run a, fr- uh, a restaurant, in, a vegetarian restaurant in Paris, uh, basically bankrolled by her daddy, um, who um, was some sort of big shot, cigar-smoking, cowboy-hat-wearing Scotsman. Who Gordon um, immediately fell head over heels for. Other people who I enjoyed seeing fail would be um, Krusty Brian. Yeah. Cantankerous old Bat Brian from the Fennec Arms. Remember him? Yeah, I mean, in a way, his very being alive was a victory, <laughs> given that he'd had about... 13 heart bypasses you told me that he was still alive to this day i i think he is i think he is and proudly advertising the fact that he's friends with friends with prince andrew oh my god <laughs> you mean that just shows you how 
unbelievably backwards that bloke is. If I think about what I disliked about him so much, was the fact that I thought he was probably a wife beater. (laughs) 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 Because his wife just seemed to like do whatever he said, even though it was incredibly um, like self like detrimental to everything they uh, you know they had as a business. Um, and also, he was just so so, he was just so underhand as well, wasn't he? You know, Gordon would come in, recommend changes, um, progressive changes, and then when he was gone, he'd tell all of his staff to, "You know, I'm the boss. Uh, you know, don't do what you know. I don't want to see my plates getting thrown away. I don't want to see that changing." And it's just like, oh my god, mate! Like, you've had five, there five heart attacks. Your business is quarter of a million pound in debt. Um, you need some help here. Fucking take it. Yeah. He was also a crockery fetishist, which mm. is a big red flag in pretty much any situation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he was he was a collector. He was a hoarder in many ways. It wasn't just crockery, it was all sorts of junk that he had um he'd got from eBay. And we know Gordon <laughs> Much to Gordon's dis- disdain. That's that one of my favourite outtakes from uh from uh, that episode where uh, Gordon's just in condemn mode at everything Brian tells him. Um, so Gordon, you know, is looking around, you know, is scoping the restaurant for something else he can have a go at Brian and he sees this huge coffee machine there and he's thinking, oh my God, what is Brian doing with a fucking huge coffee machine? That must cost a couple of grand, a couple of grand or at least, you know, to, to Brian, you know, it's a professional coffee machine, it's an expensive bit of kit. How much you get that for? Brian said, oh yeah, it's expensive, but I got it off eBay for 200 quid. And Gordon just looks at him and says, eBay. (laughs) (laughs) We discussed this at the time, didn't we? I have got no idea what's wrong with buying expensive equipment at cut rate prices. There is nothing. If you're in the There is nothing wrong with it at all. But the way Gordon looks at him, I say, you know, (laughs) only an absolute madman would uh, uh, an absolute fool would buy something from eBay, even if it's a good deal. Um, but that's 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 Gordon in a nutshell, isn't it? The ultimate ga- the ultimate gaslighter. The ultimate gaslighter. Yeah, I can't believe it's taken us this long into the episode to get onto his gaslighting skills. That is him in a nutshell. He will just spin the narrative to make you feel like you've done everything wrong, even when everything you've been doing has probably been completely rational and reasonable and sensible. He'll, with a single word, and it's normally by repeating the last word you said in hushed tones, he will make (laughs) you feel like a complete bellend. Well, it's like when he goes around, when he arrives at these kitchens and he asks people, what do you do? Or what's your name? You know, and they, and they stumble. They can't even answer it. And it's like, because they've never been asked these questions before. But Gordon comes in, um, what's your name? What do you do? And they can't answer it. There was that guy in the kitchen of the Priory, do you remember? And they asked him, um, uh, what what do you do? And he's like, oh, generally cooking of the veg and the general, general of the general. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have just hit the nail on the head. It's Gordon's questioning is exactly the same as the questioning of a toddler except far more aggressive and intimidating it's the same like what's your name what do you do what's that where's that from why that why that why that but unlike a toddler who will ask those questions in a completely naive and innocent way 
when Ramsey says it, they're all loaded to the hilt. And so people who haven't been asked questions like that by an adult, probably ever, don't know how to respond. It's true. And talking to toddlers, you maybe think of some of our worst chefs as well, like Toby, also from the Priory, who was unable to master some key motor skills uh, of humans, <laughs> like turning chicken. Um, and <laughs> This brings us on to a good point, which is over the series, we've seen a lot of very, very bad chefs. Who do you think is the worst? Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's a very good question. It's, I think one of the things that I noticed was how do these people end up in kitchens, you know? Um, you know, you've all, we've all known people that are just bad cooks, you know, and they invariably don't end up in kitchens. These people have ended up in kitchens. How did that happen? <laughs> it's a pretty cruel twist of fate, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Ima- imagine ended up doing for a, for a job what you're very, very bad at. The thing, I you're, mean, the thing you're worst at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, life really hasn't given you uh, a, a, a fair share of, uh, you know, a good deal there. A good hand, has it? <laughs> worst chefs, I think Dave Jackson... Um, at Clubway 69 or whatever it was called in Blackpool. He couldn't cook a muscle. Now, never has there been such a heavy stick to beat a chef with than this. Um, I mean, I've never cooked a muscle, to be fair. But uh, okay, fine, I'm not a head chef somewhere, so I don't need to... You're not working in Blackpool's best restaurant. Oh, yeah, that's true. Where, um, where, well, they they did invent tomato soup there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that clip is hilarious where they've got tomato and Cointreau soup on the menu and <laughs> Ramsey says tomato and what and Dave Jackson goes tomato and Cointreau and he's Ramsey just looks at him I think and Dave Jackson goes I came up with the tomato and Dawn my girlfriend came up with the Cointreau <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, Dave, you have not come up with tomato soup. <laughs> I love how the way he's described that makes it sound like it was a real team effort. Yeah, um, yeah. Even if we put aside the tomato soup element more part as being, you know, not requiring any originality there at all, the Quantro part is literally someone pouring a shot of Quantro <laughs> in the soup. It's it's not exactly a meeting of minds, is it? It's taking something that already <laughs> exists and making it considerably worse. Dave Jackson was a pretty bad chef. That's that that's very true. My favourite worst chef was Alex Scott at La Lanterna, or Alessandro as he preferred to be called. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and there's many reasons yeah. for my um feelings towards this guy. It's mainly all down to his number plate on his Audi which was a customised plate saying A1 Chef. Is this the guy where, um, on the subject of the car and the licence plate, Gordon asked him, have you got a small dick? Um, To which he replied, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, instantly confirming that, yes, he does. (laughs) It was so sincere as well, that response. But again, it's classic Gordon, isn't it? How often have you been asked, do you have a small dick? Of course you're going to say no. Exactly. It's not a question you're well-versed in responding to. It's not like, how are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How are you meant to respond? This is, we're, we're learning about Gordon now. This is it. He asks questions that no one else asks. This is why he's so good for president. <laughs> I can't wait. 
Um, actually, going back to Dave Jackson from Blackpool's Clubway 41, I was re-watching that episode um, the other day and a line that I don't think we picked up on uh, really struck me as funny. So Gordon's just tried his menu and has absolutely slated it and Dave Jackson's standing there looking a little bit shell-shocked and as Gordon walks away, Dave says, always trying to see you know, the positive side of things, well... At least I've been told I'm shit by the best. <laughs> Fair play to Dave for uh, for at least um, accepting that because yeah. um, I love the logic there. If you're going to be told you're shit, <laughs> just make sure you're told you're shit by the best. <laughs> Does that soften the blow? It's almost like something you would expect of Bertrand Russell to come out with. You know, um, so that's almost like a philosophical kind of um, a position he's taken there. You know, if you're going to be described as the worst. You, you. It may as well be by the best. You know, there, there is some, there is a logic, there is a philosophical logic there that I quite like. There's kind of a, yeah, there's kind of a mathematical thread running through it, isn't it? It's like if the person saying you're the lowest is the highest, <laughs> yeah. then perhaps that makes you not quite as low. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I, <laughs> I haven't looked into this, but I just do admire Dave's optimism in that moment. Do you want to open this up to any uh, philosophers that are listening to this, Sam? See if they can give us uh, <laughs> their take on it. I think we're onto something. I genuinely think we're onto something, you know. Is there more inherent value in being described as the worst at something by the best? I think that uh, is. Maybe Bertrand Russell isn't the right isn't the right philosophical reference here. Maybe it's someone like, you know, Jacques Derrida or someone, you know, a linguistic philosopher. I haven't got a bloody clue about any of these people, so I, I, I'm going to leave it to you to decide who's the most apt philosopher in these circumstances. You, you're like Greg from Succession. He's not heard of um, Bertrand Russell yeah. either. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I've got one other mention of uh, Worst Chef in the series, by the way. Uh, that would be um, Jimmy Lennon. Vladimir Lenin, the, the Irish. <laughs> yeah, Lenin, who we thought was definitely called Lenin, yeah, and then it yeah. turns out was actually called Lenin. Um, I, I've chosen him because this is a chef that eats only Vindaloo curry and sugar sandwiches. Um, what the fuck is going on with that guy? Do you think he's still yeah. alive? This is maybe a bit dark, but I doubt it. Uh, I think we don't want to go there. Um, and uh, part three. Should we... <laughs> <laughs> part three, chefs that we covered who are now dead. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> Part, Part three, three the, we've got the, the obituaries. obituaries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, on a serious note, um, part three, I think we need to talk a bit about Gordon. We've talked a lot about the other characters, but I think it's time for Gordon yeah. himself, the big man. Okay, let's get the scalpel out. Welcome back. Where's the lamb sauce? Uh, the return. Um, we are now on Give Me Gordon. Uh, this is uh, where we uh, we just talk about Gordon, the big man himself. We spent far too much time talking about all the peripheral characters and now um, it's time to focus on him. Uh, starting with, it has to be his best outfit, right? Because this is a fashion show, um, if it's not anything else. Yeah, life truly is a catwalk for Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> He's a sartorial maverick, even by mid naughty standards. I, I would love to talk about our our favourite outfits in the series. <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't have been a focus of the programme, and it probably wasn't for most people, but for us, it was a real source of... Uh, uh, a real trove of source material, uh, wasn't it? Um, starting with his pinstripe blazer, which we saw... Um, 
in multiple episodes matched with various other garments. Um, it just wouldn't go away, would it? It was like herpes, just kept coming back. This blazer was unbelievable, wasn't it? It was a blazer that should never have been worn, that was always being worn. It should certainly never have been matched with some of the jeans Gordon was wearing it with. I don't know if it's... I, I don't know if we're being a little bit harsh because... You know, the <laughs> mid-noughties was not a great time for fashion for anybody. But I think Gordon fared particularly badly in that era. What did our one of our true friends of the show, Michelle, describe it as? Looking like he was from a dodgy ska band or something like that. So accurate. He's one pork pie hat and a saxophone away from being in the specials. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's so true, and I love the first time we saw it. We thought it was ugly. We thought, "Oh God, you know that's a bad, that's a that's a mistake." Um, but, no, but 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 the uh, I don't know, the wardrobe on Channel Four thought it was a good idea to keep a spare one, and it just kept coming back over and over again. I think it peaked um, in I can't which which episode it was. I think it might have been the uh, the Oscars in Nantwich when he visited. Um, Lennon at his home and he turned up in the pinstripe blazer, an aquamarine t-shirt, <laughs> these sort of like straight cut jeans and then there was sort of like functional running shoes um, and it was like, he, you know, like he was going to a um, uh, an exhibition opening in Shoreditch um, but what he was actually doing was going to see an alcoholic chef It's like <laughs> his own home. It's like he'd pre- <laughs> It's like he'd predicted the future of fashion. Yeah. <laughs> um, I particularly enjoyed the pinstripe blazer when I think it was in Brighton. It was worn over his chef whites. <laughs> <laughs> the angles on that outfit were astonishing. Absolutely love that. Um. But yeah, um, there was another episode when he was wearing a kind of pervy Pringle. Mm, this number. was Brighton. This was when he was at um, yeah, Alan yeah, yeah. Love's restaurant, Ruby Tate. Yeah, and he looked like a golfer on parole. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad as well. Um, yeah, definitely. And then there was a time he went to Spain for a week and packed one single T-shirt <laughs> yeah, and wore yeah. it for the whole time. <laughs> which, which, may I add, you, you seem to think was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. <laughs> I'm just saying you don't need many T-shirts when you go to a hot country. <laughs> but if we're talking about outfits of Gordon, surely there's only one winner here. His birthday suit. Yeah. And oh my God, we've, we've seen the full Monty. I think we've probably seen more of Gordon than his wife has over the course of these 21 episodes. We've seen torso. We've seen thigh. We've seen bulge. We've seen clavicle. We've seen every hair and dimple on his chest. Yeah, it's really true. It's really true. Like I, I go to sleep. Um, and well, no, <laughs> no, go on, finish it. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I, I can close my eyes and I can picture. Yeah, those... it's a, it's its own genre of body. Yeah, it's amazing. It's almost like he's been working out so much, but yet. The normal way a, a kind of, you know, a torso would grow and strengthen, it hasn't applied to him. It's just kind of like got incrementally sort of wider and deeper. <laughs> it's remarkable that it's so 
rectangular and flat <laughs> and with, like featureless. Yeah. Yeah. What was your favourite derobing scene? We spoke about this a lot at the start of the series when he would be ripping off items of clothing at a moment's notice in any room he could get access to. It seemed to calm down a little bit towards the end, didn't it? I assume we spoke about this at the time and said it was probably the Ofcom busybodies having their way. But there were some really memorable moments, weren't there? There was a time when he was <laughs> when he stripped off in the conservatory on, um, I think it was Moore Place, which the conservatory backed yeah. onto a golf course um, where um, there were windows, three hundred and sixty degree windows. So you know, go for a little bit of privacy, a little bit of discretion. He goes out to the place where he's most visible and strips <laughs> off um, in front of everybody, which I thought was quite funny. Um, there was also the time when we saw, when he went reverse, um, reverse stripping, um, and we yeah. um, and we saw him um, below the waist naked. Uh, you know, I, I almost fell off my chair when I saw that. It was there it was, was not a viewer discretion no. is advised message at the start. I, I imagine when it was shown in America, if it yeah. was, they would have had to have had that because they're a little bit sensitive with their television. Um, rules aren't yeah, they but yeah, 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 over yeah. here like it was just anything goes and you're totally right I couldn't believe it he ripped his trousers yeah. off in the side yeah. room at, was it La Riviera in I think it was yeah in some kind of like um, sort of dodgy four star hotel and it wasn't clear that he had anything on underneath no. his chef whites <laughs> maybe they're tailored this way specifically were just skimming the end of his bollocks. There was very, very little left to the imagination. Um, fortunately, we didn't see his Ramsey, but see it wasn't far no, off. We can use our imagination, can't we? Well, we have um, been for the last six we months. Have, we really have been. There, there was an episode as well um, I listened back to recently. I think it was Morgan's in Liverpool oh, yeah. where he stripped off. And um, your observation was that the derobing scene happened in what looked like one of the sisters' bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> no coincidence, sure. Yeah. Shall we talk about, um, because a big part of some of the episodes, well, a big part of all the episodes of Kitchen Nightmares were um, a kind of metaphor that he would kind of use. We called it a metaphor um, where he would, it would kind of, he would take the owners of the restaurants or those that were most involved in problems with the restaurant and he would kind of do something practical with them to make them learn their mistakes and learn yeah. their lesson right it was his lesson to them wasn't it in a way yeah. that makes sense for tv they were tenuous at the best of times um and uh, well they they ranged from tenuous to downright dangerous he put poor <laughs> lawrence from la para de Buriana on the costa del sol in an actual bull ring that was with an actual bull that is shocking i can't i i still i still to this day think that was outrageous thing for him to do because um, he would never do that himself. He ran squealing. Yeah. The bull, and it was only a baby bull. But still, you don't want one of those horns going where the sun don't shine. And I think the lesson that he was supposed to learn from that was listen to advice. I've got no idea. The advice in that instance should definitely have been do not go in the bull ring. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, clearly, there was no advice given in that. Because I think the advice, the advice that he was supposed to listen to was from the matador who didn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man, I hope he was given legal advice, at least. Oh, yeah, absolutely shocking. Other metaphors of his which uh, perhaps made a little more sense was the confession at the Priory. This was my favourite, I think. This was just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, because the Priory was a restaurant in an old church, right? Or something like that. Yeah, it used to be a church. It was converted into a restaurant and I think it was full of old people, basically. And so Gordon sets up a confessional and sits in there and listens to the sins of... Was it the chefs? Uh, yeah, the chefs. Um, it was supposed to make them sort of fess up and um, be cleansed of their culinary sins. Um, I think they all lied to him, to be honest. I mean, they asked one of... I think Gordon asked one of them, what's the worst thing you've seen in the kitchen? And what, one of them replies, Yorkshire pudding is dropped on the floor and then put back on the plate. I mean, that's happened in every fucking kitchen in the whole country. It definitely is not the worst thing that's happened there. <laughs> No, that's seen as a, a, a good thing happening in most kitchens around the country on a Sunday afternoon. There's nothing wrong with that. Yorkshire pudding can be dropped on the floor. Come on. Um, another big part of, his, of these episodes were his PR stunts, not just his metaphors. Um, and at Piccolo Teatro in Paris, it was all about the uh, the vegetarian restaurant and um, Je suis en tarte vegetarienne. Um, Sam, tell us about um, the scope of this PR stunt and, um, you know, why it was so effective. (laughs) So essentially what happened is Gordon went out of the town one night with the owner of of Piccolo Teatro, Rachel, and her dad, Brian, who was bankrolling the whole operation and who Gordon had an enormous crush on, seemingly just because he wore a cowboy hat. Um. I think what happened that night, they ended up meeting a bunch of girls, gave them their number and forgot about <laughs> it. And then the following day, these girls turned out to be can-can dancers and came to meet them under the Eiffel Tower, where Gordon had hastily printed a batch of bright green t-shirts with the phrase, Je suis une tarte vegetarienne, scrawled across the front in Comic Sans and I'm still not entirely sure what the point behind all this was but I guess it was to I, I can tell you it was um, because he it was there his attempt at making vegetarian food sexy again that's what it was through green t-shirts um, with Comic Sans text th- that's where he, he, that's where he lets himself down. <laughs> this is this is this is why it's one of his tackiest PR stunts. Because um, if you want to make vegetarian food sexy, uh, don't um, mince around in a green t-shirt, a skin-tight green t-shirt with anything in Comic Sans printed on it. That would be my advice to him. I mean, uh, who's asking me? Who's asking me? But that would be my advice. If you want to make anything sexy, avoid Comic Sans at all costs. Once again, Gordon's sartorial sense lets him down. I can actually imagine Gordon's sense of romance being fairly closely aligned to Comic Sans. In what sense? Elaborate. Basic, deeply unromantic, um, and mildly amusing. Readily available. Exactly. You know, you don't have to, da- you don't have to download anything for that. It's already there. Exactly. Um, but that whole episode... Uh, that whole kind of um, PR stunt, like you said, was basically just sort of like 48 hours on a bender, wasn't it, with Gordon? I mean, you can see the, the bags under his eyes. He'd just been out all night um, on an absolute bender with, with his new best mate, Brian. 
Um, and he thought, "Fuck, I need to, I need to do a, I need to do the PR stunt of the episode." Yeah, where can we get a dozen t-shirts printed in five minutes' notice? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was it. That was it. Yeah, because the, um, the night before they were at a strip club or a kind of can-can club Moulin Rouge type thing, weren't they? So it's definitely no yeah. coincidence that they then ended up 12 hours later with six girls from the same club. And a load of um, single euro notes in their in their wallets. <laughs> Gordon's wallet has mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> um, another, I mean, the king of all his PR stunts. So, um, it can be no challenger really to what we saw at the Fennec Arms. Oh yeah, and the <laughs> the campaign for real gravy. <laughs> This is perfect on so many levels. It's perfect because it actually worked for a start. I mean, we found out later that the website campaignforrealgravy.net or whatever it was, was getting, what was it, 30,000 unique visitors a month or something like that. Way too many. Way too many. But the second reason is because, you know, this is, this is a pub in, is it Yorkshire? No, Lancashire. Lancashire, Lancashire, yeah, yeah. In the mid-2000s, real gravy definitely existed. The only place not doing real gravy <laughs> was the Fennec Arms. And so the irony of them then setting up a campaign for real gravy, I'm sure, wasn't lost on all other restaurants in the vicinity. This is where I find it so amusing. The purpose of a campaign is to raise awareness for something new, right? Yeah. A new idea or a new initiative or whatever it is. They're raising awareness for something that exists already. Yeah. But just that they're not doing it very well. It's like us starting a campaign for humour in podcasts. It's like <laughs> everybody else is doing that. We're the only ones not doing it. It's not our right to start that campaign and spearhead the movement. <laughs> I mean, you, you could, you could, you're smart for choice with, with uh, you know, examples of how you do this. <laughs> but yeah, this is it. It's, it's, it's almost like what they're actually, ca- what the purpose of their camp is actually draw- drawing attention to the fact they haven't been doing it very well. <laughs> but like you said earlier, this is a post-truth world. Gordon was post-truth, pre-post-truth. I know, that's complicated. Should we get Bertrand Russell in again to explain that? <laughs> Who? <laughs> Gordon was making up his own facts before that was commonly done in the mainstream. And um, he was using a megaphone to, tri- to distribute those messages. And he might as well have had a hat saying... Let's make gravy great again. That's the next. That's the next logical step. Yeah, <laughs> you're so right. Um, what he did prove in this whole series, though, is that you know you can keep your social medias is, you can keep your digital marketings is, you can keep your Cambridge Analytica's is. The only thing that is truly effective in spreading the word is a megaphone. Yeah, yeah. The success he gets with a megaphone is a lesson to us all. Unbelievable. You know. Go out there and shout bullshit at people. Works. Yeah. Uh, he knew that way before Trump. Did. Exactly. He's twenty years ahead of them. You know, you can imagine when he pitched the campaign to Old Gravy to you know Brian and Elaine and all the other you know morons that were at the Fennec Arms. You know, they might have said, <laughs> "Oh yeah, but 
Um, we, we probably should have been doing real, like real gravy. We, we should have been doing that already. What are we campaigning for? Yes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People, people, people are stupid. People, they'll yeah. just, they will just, um, they will just swallow whatever we give them. And what we're giving them now is real gravy. Uh, I think that's about enough for Gordon. Uh, believe it or not, I think when we come back in part four, should we just reflect on the series uh, as a whole and give it a bit of a lowdown? Uh, yeah, let's do that. We'll see you in part four. Welcome back, part four. Where's the lamb sauce of the return? Time for some broader reflections on the previous 21 episodes. Um, starting with some outrageous decisions that we've seen by some of the protagonists of the of the series. I mean, I know that sounds like quite, <laughs> quite a broad spectrum because there's a hell of a lot of bad decisions made here. But some were more memorable than others, I think it's safe to say, right? Yeah, some bad decisions were a bad decision within themselves. Some bad decisions led <laughs> to repercussions and further ripples of badness that just kind of continued growing throughout the entire episode. And may I add, um, this isn't a criticism, we endorse bad decisions um, at Wasteland Source. This because... podcast was built on bad decisions. This podcast exactly. is here because of bad decisions exactly exactly so so please um don't don't think this is any sort of criticism um so for example when that guy at the glass house criticized the caesar salad that gordon ramsay made we 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 appreciated that it was a terrible decision for him but we we enjoyed it (laughs) we enjoyed it it was great because ramsay had just shown him how to make a nice caesar salad and he was complaining about the portion size wasn't he Uh, i mean While we appreciated it, Gordon didn't, unsurprisingly. But Gordon's retort, rather than talking about any number of things that he could have talked about, he instead focused in on how he'd washed the salad without touching it. That was his retort. Yeah, yeah, and and, and then after um, that, after that retort, he then essentially invited the guy out for a fight, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Did it? I don't remember that bit. I was, it was all sort of under hushed tones. It was sort of like, come outside. I go, you know, I'll t- I'll, I'll, I'll teach you about a Caesar salad outside, sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think he said it. Um, the the salad was beautifully washed, and it, I didn't I didn't touch it with my hands. I let it dress itself. <laughs> that was his words it's like whoopie so, fucking do Gordon like we're not particularly impressed by that I've got to be honest uh, well I mean uh, that that was um, that was that was Gordon asserting himself um, in that context that's because yeah totally and that's because we're Luddites we have not got a clue what we're talking about Gordon we absolutely bow to your superiority when it comes to dressing a Caesar salad without touching it for the record we we, st- we still have to keep our white house campaign on track here let's not forget yeah i'll ask you sam have you ever made a caesar salad have you dress have you let it dress itself <laughs> never i can barely dress myself uh neither, neither can gordon apparently um <laughs> judging by <laughs> judging by his pinstrap blazer um so other outrageous decisions made i think uh uh brian i mean we've already touched on this i suppose but brian from the fennec arms uh, going to war with some of gordon's changes behind his back was a pretty bad one and i think when Gordon revisits that episode of the Fennec Arms, he finds out that the prawn cocktail that he's put on the menu in its traditional serving suggestion, which is in a, a glass, I think, Brian now puts it in a 
scallop shell, I think, which is just such a stupid, stupid decision based on absolutely nothing but retention. And Gordon takes him down pretty well for that, doesn't he? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I think what we learn from this bit in particular is if you're going to disagree with Gordon's changes, the only way you can do that in a way that isn't going to result in him completely despising you forever is to just do it to his face because he appreciates upfront discussion most of the time. And so I think the fact that Brian did it behind his back without telling him, that's unforgivable. Terrible decision. Terrible decision. Never go behind his back. Because Gordon is like Gordon is like the is like your wife. You know, you can't keep many secrets from your wife. She'll she'll find out eventually, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> so Brian trying to hide some of the, you know, some of the, you know, his decision to block some of Gordon's changes was never gonna was never gonna be kept secret for very long. So, what, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Yeah, it's like deleting your internet history when you know you're gonna be getting a bill that is itemized in the next week or so. <laughs> Another bad decision this time on Gordon's part was for me at the Sandgate Hotel when they had an oyster-eating competition with a bunch of uh, French people from the town that was twinned with Sandgate called Sangat, um, which I'm still convinced is a fictional place that they've just made up and said Sandgate with a French accent. Um, the oyster-eating competition went fairly well and the Sandgate team wiped the floor with the French contingent all fine no bad decisions there the bad decision was when gordon picked up one of the slightly larger slightly older than <laughs> middle-aged french women who had just consumed about 500 kilograms of oysters ran down the pebbly beach with her <laughs> and body slammed her into the shallows what was he thinking um on the subject of french on the subject of the french um, what about that French chef at more? Oh, no, no, it was it was D Place um, in Essex. Oh, Philippe Blaise. Philippe Blaise, yeah, who um, caught, dug himself a rather deep hole when interrogated by Gordon about some roast potatoes, which weren't actually roasted; they were deep fried. And when Gordon pressed him um, for their real cooking method, he kept up the lie for as long as he could until he wilted. Well, um, Gordon asked one of the other chefs to get the truth didn't he and this other chef sold philippe up the river but but this is where the hypocrisy comes in because we live in a post-truth world now you know that would be you know if that had happened in 2020 that's acceptable you know yeah if you t if you tell the world those those roast potatoes were roasted they were roasted it doesn't matter if they were that's, that's so true you know partisan potatoes yeah <laughs> <laughs> So it's a shame for Philip Blaze that he did he he conducted that lie fifteen years ago. <laughs> I guess you could call Philippe Blaze a trail blazer. Oh. <laughs> I mean other bad decisions we can talk about would be probably any serving anything to Gordon on a hook. Anything uh, on a hook that has the potential to flap or swing. Anything cylindrical or remotely phallic, that's a mistake as well. And somehow chefs continually do both of these things i don't know i mean they just kept happening 
all the time. Um, whether it was a um, a kebab served on a hook, or it was the uh, I think that was at the restaurant in Spain, or it was the naan bread antler thing um, <laughs> in the, cu- the curry lounge. Uh, the curry lounge, exactly. Um, they seemed it was it was it was uh, there was no shortage of of uh, restaurants that were giving Ramsay plenty of ammunition um, for something that he really didn't like. Um, There's a very simple rule here for chefs <laughs> serving food to Gordon Ramsay. Don't make it look or act like genitalia. Precisely. Um, but they never learn from the mistakes, as we learned. Um, they uh, they make the same mistakes over and over and over again. We know Gordon's got a very dirty mind um, and uh, they were happy to play up to it. My favourite example of his dirty mind was at the Sandgate Hotel, I think, when he was served an upright cylinder of chicken. And what were they thinking? Jokingly, what were they thinking? And jokingly, he says to the waitress, uh, "Waitress, I'm missing my bollocks." And she turns around and says, "Oh, your potatoes are just coming." I can't believe that. It's amazing. It's almost like I love, I love the 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 the, the professionalism there. Um, where she didn't rise to it whatsoever. <laughs> I'm not sure if she was completely unwitting in that instance or whether she was actually being smart back to him. Either way, it's bloody funny. Yeah, either way, either way. It's pretty good, pretty good value, I have to say. So those are some of our most outrageous decisions of the series. Um, I think, should we just reflect on the worst nightmares. Uh, I guess this is another way of saying what 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 are the most entertaining episodes, right? Yeah, I think so. It's kitchen nightmares. It's about nightmares that happen in the kitchen. The entire series is predicated on bad things happening in restaurants. Well, I feel like every episode he would open with, this is my toughest kitchen nightmare yet. Now, from an objective standpoint, someone actually watching it like we were, there were a few that stood out more than any. I think... Piccolo Teatro would be one of them just because you've got an owner there in Rachel who's so inept and so apathetic to the, you know, the role of being a restaurateur. In fact, even her own father said that her weakness is running a business and that's essentially all she does (laughs) there. So Not a ringing endorsement, is it? No, no, exactly. So um, I think that has to be his his, his worst nightmare yet. And it didn't work out particularly well um, with that one. Not not particularly spectacularly exceptional. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it didn't work out particularly well for anyone involved, did it? So there's a brief recap. Gordon went over there as a vegetarian restaurant in Paris being bankrolled by Rachel's dad, like we've said. Um, Gordon kicks out the original chef, who was a completely loony Brazilian guy called Daniel? David? Daniel. 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 Gets rid of him, literally throws him over his shoulder and, and carts him down the road. Gets in a new chef from Scotland who packs up everything in Scotland and comes over to Paris so that she can work in this restaurant. And then about a week later, Rachel, the owner, decides, ah, fuck it, I can't be bothered with this anymore and closes the doors, leaving this new chef, India. Should we talk about what happens next? I think it's a good point to talk about um, the aftermaths of some of these episodes because um, you were very good at, at researching what happened next after all of these. Um, and I think the... Uh, 
<laughs> the aftermath of Piccolo Teatro was um, colourful, say the least, allegedly. Yes. There were often quite interesting, not backstories, what would you call a backstory, but when it goes forward, front stories to um, some of these episodes. For instance, there was um, one of the restaurants that got a car driven into it and was set on fire. There was the sous chef at Clubway 41 who was arrested on child sex offence charges a little bit later. Um, There was a lot of stuff like this going on. There's always some dirt if you dig deep enough. And I have to shout out my source for a lot of this stuff throughout the series, which was a website called realitytvrevisited.com. Oh, you've given away your sources there, Sam. I thought you had been, you know, um, diligently sleuthing the internet. Uh, <laughs> that's one source i have been digging deeper than that to find certain okay. things out and one thing we found out about rachel mcnally from piccolo teatro in paris after she closed the doors um she became a prostitute in paris <laughs> and this was something we only found out after recording the episode do you, do you have any quotes or anything that you can ver- you can use to verify this story? Yes, I found a story on um, an incredibly reliable website called thefinancialexpress.com. <laughs> um, and that seems to be the source of this <laughs> entire uh, this entire story. Okay. And has since been quoted by The Sun and other such reputable outlets. The quote in the Financial Express article (laughs) um, from Rachel says, Gordon did absolutely nothing for me. So instead, I decided to swap my restaurant for life as a hooker. Actually, this this in itself is quoted from The Sun. I think The Sun was the original source. Oh, okay. So it's um, a lot more reliable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that is um, that is <laughs> one of the more um, I, I, I was going to say one of the one of the more um, surprising aftermaths from, from. It's certainly one of the more salacious, and we should add it's entirely um, unverified. Entirely unverified, yeah, yeah. I mean, across the board, I think the from looking at what the what happened next for a lot of these places that were covered on kitchen nightmares, they they tended to not last much longer than sort of. 18 months that seemed that seemed to be like the kind of uh, threshold yeah i think we had a couple that stayed open for three or four years and we were ecstatic we were jubilant that they'd been so successful most of them closed up within a year shall we talk about one of our favorite um kind of uh, i guess motifs of the series which is gordon's insults and uh, and look at a few of our favorites um, of that before we wrap things up because um, I think if, if Gordon is nothing else he is his insults um, that is that is what we all know Gordon for and I think some of his best are from Kitchen Nightmares UK Yeah if you asked the proverbial man on the street what they thought about Gordon Ramsay they would 
yeah. be able to quote several insults from YouTube, I think. Now, a lot of those yeah. are very packaged and memed to the hilt, things like Idiot Sandwich and, 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 and so on. And I don't yeah. like those so much. What I like no. about the Kitchen Nightmares one is their understated glory. The fact that we yeah. don't hear much about them, the fact that they're not packaged up into 30-second clips on social media, but the fact that they're way more cutting and personal and considered than anything he's done since then. Shall I kick off? Please do. Uh, so top of my list would be uh, what he called Nigel um, from, I think it was, uh, I can't remember, it was the place in Hampshire. I forgot what it was the called. The Granary. Now. The granary. The granary. He called him a fat idiot. <laughs> That's why you're in this shit, you no, fucking fat idiot. Which is fantastic, just because it really touched a nerve. It's a perfect example of one of Gordon's laser-guided insults, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's the worst thing he could have possibly said. He's got a, he's got a sixth sense for what really... Um, gets under someone's skin, and I think that's why that one was so perfect. Don't call me fat, you are a twat! What about telling someone they had bad breath? This one is completely out there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of anything more, you know, more insulting to say to someone. Um, I mean, if you're if you're a girl, maybe if you sell to someone you're a dirty lady, which he did uh, to uh, to uh, Aldona. Um, at Lala and Turner, I've, I've pretty good. <laughs> Dirty lady is such a great two-word insult, isn't it? I wasn't it when he found out that she had been like chucking bread rolls down the back of the oven or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. He was yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. "Well, you're you're a dirty lady." <laughs> it's just the use of the word "lady." Um, others on my list. So someone someone's about to piss their pants um, was a yeah, good one. Love that. Um, I think he called Adam Love a weak man and then, and then Adam Love said to him don't call me a weak man to which Gordon replied you're a weak man which is, uh, which is another, another personal favourite <laughs> <laughs> was that yeah that was Alan Love wasn't yeah it? it was Alan Love yeah yeah, yeah, that, that's that's such a funny one, isn't it? Any others from your side, Sam, that you want to raise? Well, I think the one that we haven't touched on so far that we've probably mentioned the most is have you gone a bit bonjour? Of course. Which is another one of these phrases that has entered our vocabulary in a big way. Well, we haven't found a way of translating that yet, have we, successfully? What's the translation? There is no translation. He's literally taken a word that means something else and repackaged it to mean what he wants it to mean it's it's not only post-truth it's post-language <laughs> i mean those are some of our favorites do you have any more sam before we uh wrap things up yeah that's all from me i would in um in typical fashion like to hear from our listeners so perhaps we put this out on a instagram poll or something like that so if you follow us on lamb sauce pod on instagram you'll have your chance to have your say. But I think that's pretty much about it for our recap. Again, it's not the end. Yeah, we've got a few weeks. Let's see what this lockdown brings. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode. It's been great fun. <laughs> it's been possibly the most self-indulgent thing I've ever done and I've enjoyed it immensely. I don't know what that says about me. And I appreciate everybody who's tuned in and left nice comments and said that they've enjoyed listening to it. There haven't been that many of you, but there have been more of you than we probably expected at the start of this, and we hugely appreciate that. We do. 
We do. So stay in touch. Until next time. Don't have nightmares. <laughs>